0: News Talk Breakfast with Kira Kelly and Shane Coleman. In association with AIR on News Talk. Now my next guest is a number one best-selling author whose books have sold over 7 million copies worldwide. He's a former newspaper columnist turned novelist and his latest novel is entitled The Maker. It sees a struggling author sees a chance to uncover his father's elusive past in the Witness Protection programme. Linwood Barclay, good morning and welcome to the programme.
1: It's great to be with you, Pat. How are you?
0: I'm very well. Now, your new book is called The Lie Maker, uh, and tell us where that comes from.
1: Well, I suppose it could as- apply as much to the author as the subject matter. I mean, it is fiction, but um, but uh, The Lie Maker is about a about a writer who's not terribly successful, although critically well received, and he receives a very interesting proposition from the folks who relocate witnesses and put them in a protection program they ask him look you know we've read your stuff we you, you're very good at writing characters we want you to write backstories for these relocated witnesses create a new past for them and something that sounds right that suits their character and so forth and he thinks wow this not only is this kind of an amazing job offer but clearly they are unaware that when i was just a kid my own father was went into the witness protection program, and my mom, you know, and, uh, and and he would not would not let him, you know, would would not go with him. And so he thinks maybe if he takes this job, he can uh, get into their good graces and find a way to reconnect with the father that he hasn't seen in a very long time. And uh, and soon realizes that uh, his father may be in tremendous danger and we're, uh, we're up against the clock trying to find him.
0: Now, uh, the scenario here is uh, this guy, he's a good writer, but um, has not had great success. So he's almost broke. So when they yes. come along and they say, listen, we'll pay you a lot of money to write these backstories uh, because we may be good at finding places for people to live. We may be able to protect them, but we're lousy at helping them to create a backstory. Um, yeah. Where did that idea come to you
1: from? Well, you know, I, at one point I was thinking about writing a, just a sort of broader story about uh, the, a, a witness relocation team and the various problems that they have. And then I thought, well, maybe that's kind of been done. And, and I thought, what if I narrowed the focus and came at it in a very different and kind of personal way? And and thought, what if, you know, what if they were to come to a guy like me who has no sort of, you know, law and order background, but said, look, you're creative. We're not. How would you like to write the backstories for these people? So that's kind of originally where the idea came from. And then the sort of second half of it was, you know, this whole connection with his, his missing father. I have in my desk drawer here where I work and has always been in whatever desk I had. have, I have my father's wallet. And my father died when I was only sixteen, and uh, I've always kept his wallet and always have it in my desk. And one day I tweeted a picture of it on the sort of fiftieth anniversary of his passing, and said, "You know, for fifty years this has been in my desk," and it created such a kind of you know viral moment on Twitter, and even Stephen King retweeted it too. And everybody was saying, "Gee, I still have my my mom's purse, or I still have my dad's hat," and I thought there's something there and so incorporated into the line maker is the fact that Jack this our character who's hired to write backstory Jack still has his dad's wallet and has not just kept it in a desk but has had it in his pocket for all these years Mm -hmm. and it becomes kind of a Pivotal point in, yeah, the, in, the, in the story.
0: Obviously, you know the fate of that wallet, which, um, at, the, at the end of the book, we find out what uh, is ultimately to become of it. He has a, a woman in his life, Lana, an investigative reporter, who ends up being sucked into this tale.
1: Yes, and and a part of that, of course, is it's it's in her own nature. I mean, when she, when when Jack tells her he's gotten this this a particular job that's very lucrative. Uh, but he can't tell her, He's absolutely cannot tell her what it is. And so she's just the kind of person that thinks I want to find out anyway. And so she starts digging. She thinks maybe he's been hired to write speeches for some politician or, or something like that. And of course, and as a journalist, she sees that as going to the dark side. So she really wants to know what he might be up to. But yes, ultimately, she does learn what's happening and gets dragged into the mm-hmm. mayhem herself.
0: Now you throw little things in like Lana is the kind of person who if his phone was lying on the kitchen table and a text came in she'd grab it first to look at it.
1: Sure. Oh yeah, she can't help herself. Um and and, and of course it, about phones you know when he when when um When Jack is first approached, he's actually approached by his own literary agent who says that there is a proposal that has come to him, and he gives Jack a phone, and he says, someone will call you, and he has no idea what it's about, and so for a couple of days, this phone is sitting on the counter, and he and Lana are both just sort of staring at it, and they think it's probably never going to uh, to, to ring. And then they sort of start uh, having a, something of an amorous moment, and suddenly the phone rings, and Jack says, you know, I better answer that. And uh, But Lana's very curious. I mean, she's like a lot of great journalists that I've known. I mean, you know, they just, they hate secrets. They want to know everything.
0: Now, your your books generally reflect uh, something that's in the public domain that's preoccupying people. I remember when we talked about Look Both Ways, it was about autonomous cars going crazy. Oh, yeah. Now, yes. in your case, uh, the cars went far crazier than they ever have in real life. But just, there have you been, just,
1: wait just you wait
0: though. <laughs> <laughs> there have been incidents though in real life of cars not doing what it was predicted they would do.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's funny. Ever since I wrote the the novel, Look Both Ways, you know, about this test community of self-driving cars that, you know, they have a virus, get into them, and they go, they run amok. Everybody, time many times there's a story about some self-driving car that goes nuts, everyone sends it to me. And I think, well, this is interesting, but I just finished that book. It's done. I can't do it. I can't do another one. But there's, I'm not ready for that. I'm not ready for that technology. And i and we're always hearing about accidents where they, They don't spot things or they can't tell they see a they see a a, you know a dark paneled truck and think it's nighttime and there's all the kinds of problems so i'm just not you know there's a new ad on tv for some a lincoln or something that just has a feature of hands-free you can take your hands off the steering wheel while you drive and i think was it that hard was it that hard to hold the steering wheel i mean has that been for all these years just a tremendous burden (laughs) it doesn't seem that bad to me Mm -hmm. have you gone electric yet no, I haven't. I'm still, you know, I live here in Canada and we have wonderfully hot summers, but we have very cold winters. And there's always talk about how battery life lasts, uh, doesn't last nearly as long in the cold. And I have, uh, among the many anxieties that I have, one of them is range anxiety. So I haven't gone electric yet. Yeah.
0: Anyway, you've had a longstanding love affair with the internal combustion engine ever since your dad's time.
1: Exactly. Well, as, as we've met, noted in, in Look Both Ways, my, I grew up surrounded by car imagery because my father was working in advertising and he was uh, a commercial artist. He was an automotive illustrator. And back in the 50s and 60s and so forth, all of the car ads were illustrations. And, um, and a little illustration allows you to exaggerate all of the car's features. You could make them longer and wider and make the fins taller. And, you know, in the 60s, photography kind of killed what my dad did. As he said, cars started looking better, so we didn't have to distort them so much.
0: Mm. Um, In in other books that you and I have uh, spoken about, Elevator Pitch, um, which put the fear of God into me every time I took the lift here in Marconi House in (laughs) Dublin, because the idea that you couldn't trust a lift. Now, okay, we're only a few floors, but... You know, if you're in a big city and there's a 40-floor building or a a 60-floor building, you don't have a choice but to use the elevator. And you trust in technology. You trust in maintenance. You trust that there are no 'er ne'er-do-wells who are going to interfere with the whole thing.
1: I know. We put so much trust in these things. And it's funny, when I wrote Elevator Pitch, I think that was 2019 that came out, I know I, I I was amazed at how many people were freaked out by it Uh, because it's a kind of intersection of phobias you know fear of fear of heights and and then closed places and loss of control and all those sort of things but you're right we we put our faith in technology and yet just this week there's stories on the news about how how many near misses there are around airports and on runways and how many how close we come to collisions all the time and that just you know that gives me pause about flying I mean I already had enough to begin with but I mean. We have so much faith in these things, but they do go wrong. Mm-hmm.
0: And something else that is replicated in the news in your book, Find You First, which is about a guy who is a, an inveterate sperm donor. And we've had a case on this side of the Atlantic where a, a guy was rather profligate with his sperm. And there was a concern, I think it was in Denmark, that, you know, cousins would be marrying cousins or half brothers and sisters might mate.
1: I know, I know. It's just, you know, this every time we create a new technology, I think we don't think far enough ahead to, well, what, what, how could this go wrong? And invariably, it can always go wrong. It just doesn't matter what it is. There's always, it's this law of unintended consequence that you, you do one thing to, to create a, a better result, but creates a negative result. And, and I think these things are happening at an exponentially, you know, faster rate now as I mean, you know, look at writers for ourselves, we're all we're all wondering now whether AI is going to completely put us out of business, you know, you'll just, you'll just feed 10 of my novels and 10 of Harlan Coben's and a whole bunch of other books into a big computer system, and then it'll pump out a thriller. And although I'm thinking it would take some of the, you know, some of the load off. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I've tried
0: to AI on, you know, writing a headline for my program or whatever. And yes, it's competent, but it's not terribly witty or
1: entertaining. It does the job. It's kind of lacks nuance. You know, they lack nuance. and And I think that's, I'm hopeful. I think that's ultimately why creative people, whether it's music, you know, musicians or writers, you know, composers, any of those kinds of things, all of those things depend on such a strong emotional component and, and nuance. And, and I think those are the kinds of things that you really can't replicate digitally. That's my hope anyway. Yeah.
0: Maybe I should get AI to write a, a promo for you and um, saying, please write a promo about uh, Linwood Barkley with new <laughs> with nuance, please. <laughs>
1: well, I was, I was interviewed by someone else, you know, on, on this side of the ocean uh, who does what you do. And I said, well, suppose we took recordings of 100 different uh, radio personalities and we just pumped them into a computer and then we could just have one created and it could ask the questions it could go to commercials it could go to traffic it could do everything And we wouldn't need what you do. You wouldn't need what I do. And we would just have computers talking to computers and the rest of us would just sit at the beach, I guess. I don't know.
0: They wouldn't pay us to do that, I'm afraid. Uh, (laughs) No, that that (laughs) would be the problem. Um, In in your book, Never Saw It Coming, uh, it was about a con artist who was a a psychic, who wasn't really psychic at all, just using uh, information in the public domain to pretend. Um, But you've got to put your psychic shoes on now and, and think, what is going to fascinate my readers in my next book
1: yeah i think I, my hope is that if it's something that fascinates me that i find curious or quirky that that you know that we others will as well and i think i'm just kind of a regular person who's intrigued by the same things as everybody else so you just kind of i don't have a i don't have an ai program that kind of canvases people to see what they might be interested in i just go on my with my own kind of gut i think that stories that kind of touch people where they live that that they can identify with the characters or identify with the situation I think those are I mean like with elevator pitch I mean we've all been on elevators you know and people read that and think, God I get on an elevator every day and I never thought about being terrified by it but now I am and so I just kind of think that I, that's that's kind of the stuff I look for what touches people what's what's Gets them where they live, you know, uh, yeah. that kind of thing. Uh,
0: and in um, Take Your Breath Away, you know, the woman who's supposed to be dead and suddenly, oh, there's so-and-so. I thought she was dead. Uh, but yeah. in this case, it's her uh, husband, her widower, if you like, who yes. uh, catches a glimpse of, uh, of somebody. But that's happened to all of us. It's those kind of experiences. I thought I saw somebody. And then you realize, no, could not have been that person. They don't live here anymore.
1: You know, I, I, Seth takes me way back to, you know, in the uh, in the wake of that whole O.J. Simpson case. And they had, and I, suddenly I can't remember the name, but you know, there was this other fellow from the restaurant who was killed at the same time as yeah. O.J. Simpson's wife. And Ron Goldman was uh, either the father or the son. Of that. But anyway, I saw him interviewed one night on TV, and his son had been dead for some time. And he said he'll be driving along, and he'll see somebody in a car that sort of looks like his son. And he knows it can't be, but he has to get catch up to that car, and he has to see for himself. And I always that never left me. And I get that, you know. And we know it won't be them, but we just have we have to know for sure.
0: Um, when you're writing these days, because uh, some of your work has been adapted for the big and small screen, uh, do you write with cinema in mind?
1: No, I really don't. Um, But I am a kid who, you know, grew up with my eyes glued to TVs and loved, I mean, you know, I should, I would love to say as an author that my inspiration was Hemingway and Shakespeare, but it was really television. And so I just, when I'm writing, I'm seeing it as if it were on a screen. So it's not that I'm intending it thinking, oh, this will be a good TV show. It's just, that's how I see it to begin with. And maybe that's why you know occasionally people have shown some interest in optioning or whatever, making something out of out of my book. Um, you know, and I, for me, chapter breaks are commercial breaks. You know, that's yeah. the way I that's the way I approach a book. Yeah.
0: And I must say, reading The Lie Maker, I see it the same way. I see it cinematically. I don't put an actor's face into Jack's character or a, a female actor into Lana's character. But I'm almost there. Do you know that kind of way when when I'm uh, yeah. reading the books, I see it in television or cinematic terms.
1: Yeah, I do too. And, and I don't see any particular actors or whatever in it either. I just they're kind of they're they're a little vague in how they look, but the situation and where they are and the setting and, and the action, I, I I can visualize all of that. And uh, you know, so uh, that's I it's I just that's the kind of kid. That's the kind of kid I always was, and I've never really grown up.
0: Well, I'll borrow from Shakespeare now. When shall we two meet again in thunder, lightning, or in rain? When's the next book due? When are we going to talk again, Linwood?
1: Well, I would think um, probably around next July or August, I think. Next year's book is written. Uh, I have just a couple minor tweaks to do on it. We don't have a title for it yet, but I can say it's about a teacher who's in a whole lot of trouble. Okay.
0: I look forward to it enormously, but for the moment, I want to recommend The Lime Maker to one and all and my thanks to New York Times best-selling author, creator of The Lime Maker, Linwood Barkley. Thank you very much.
1: It's always a pleasure Pat. Thank you so much.
0: News Talk Breakfast with Kira Kelly and Shane Coleman in association with Air on News Talk.